with movies or books, whether that's reading them, writing them, uh, watching them, you know that good character development is important for you to be able to connect with those in the pages or on screen. It helps you to be excited about when things are going well with them or sad when things are not so much. And usually there's some sort of conflict within that story that you're rooting for them to endure through. And sometimes, in extreme cases, you can have someone who's trapped in a car, or airplanes that are on a course that it looks like they're going to crash, or maybe someone's being held hostage by someone else, or maybe they're even caught in a natural disaster. And as you read or as you watch, you can be on the edge of your seat, hoping that they are able to be rescued. Like Even though it's not real life, we can be deeply moved when all hope seems lost, and yet then they're able to endure through the struggle. And yet when we hear real life stories of where people are on the edge of death and then they're rescued, it can be even that much more moving. Think about it, on January 15, 2009, maybe you are on US Airways flight 1549. You're leaving New York. There are 155 of you on board, and it's a day like any other day, and yet it's going to end as anything but that. You see, only a few minutes into the flight, the plane encounters a flock of birds, and that causes both engines of the plane to stop. And sitting as a passenger, you don't know everything that is happening, but a little at a time, you begin to understand what is occurring. And the pilot, who people refer to as Sully, is a retired Air Force pilot. And he assesses the situation and he decides that the plane cannot make it back to the airport of which you have taken off, or any other airport for that matter. And so in an attempt to save everyone on board and not to crash into the densely populated area that they are flying over, he decides to land the plane in the Hudson River. Can you imagine being told that as a passenger? Like, can you imagine the thoughts running through your head, wondering if the last time that you had just seen everyone really was the last time that you would be seeing them? Can you imagine the feelings that you would be experiencing as the plane is getting closer to the water and even hearing the words, embrace for impact? But can you also imagine the excitement of when the plane is fully at rest. But even still at that moment, like you still have to be rescued from the 35 degree water and the 18 degree air temperature. And amazingly, everyone survived. And after the investigation, Sully was seen as a hero. You see, he had rescued you. Or I want you to think about maybe you are one of 33 Chilean miners that were working that day in the San Jose mine. At approximately 2 p.m., a cave-in occurred following other disturbances that had happened earlier that day. And a rescue attempt happened that first night, but it was unsuccessful. And so a couple days later, a second collapse occurs, blocking even access to the ventilation shafts. And for a time, no one knows whether you're alive or not. That is, until a probe is sent down 17 days after the collapse had originally happened. And that probe is able to carry up a note that was written in red ink that said, we are fine in the shelter, all 33 of us. 
And later, a video feed is sent down through a small hole, and it confirms that every single one of you is fine, but you are trapped approximately 2,300 feet from the surface. And during those 17 days, when there was no contact with the outside world, everyone was surviving on the supply of emergency rations that was intended to last two days. Many people only ate a little bit every other day. Water was obtained from a spring. Some of the men developed infections due to the high humidity and the heat, where it was up to sometimes 95 degrees. A couple people suffered eye and respiratory problems, but beyond that, everyone really was fine. But as quickly as possible, the, those outside the mine, they're able to pass down solid food and first aid supplies and exercise routines and lighting devices to help those of you who are in need. There's also mental health specialists brought in to help both the miners and their families. Three different drills were brought in so that they might be able to free those who were trapped. And when an opening big enough was made, a rescue worker was sent down. One by one, the men were brought to the top. And one man remembered that even as the capsule was pulling him out towards the light, he was screaming just because he was ready to see the light. 69 days after the collapse, all 33 men from the mine were rescued. 69 days. Do you remember where you were August 30th of this year? Because that's 69 days. Those men, they needed saved, and it wasn't quick, but when they were all rescued, everyone sang the Chilean national anthem in excitement. Recently, I found out about a show called I Shouldn't Be Alive. And so I, I started looking at some of these different episodes, and they tell of either a person's story or a group of people's story of a time in their life when they should have died. And there are episodes about plane crashes and some about people being lost at sea, or sometimes people being trapped after an earthquake or an avalanche, or being attacked by a vicious animal, or stranded in the desert or a jungle, or even things like being kidnapped. And one headline caught my eye because I've hiked the Grand Canyon, and so I started watching that episode. There was a woman named Linda who was 25 years old. She was a student nurse in Pittsburgh, and she wanted to go off for adventure, so she decided she was going to take this two-week trip traveling across the country, and she took her dog with her. And as she got to the Grand Canyon, she decided, well, I think I want to hike part of this. And she saw a set of waterfalls on a postcard and asked about where exactly is this. And so they gave her directions. She decided that that was where she wanted to hike to. And so she sent off postcards to her family telling them that everything was great. And she began her journey. She drove 30 miles to the spot of which she could get out. And she began her hike in the afternoon. But later... As time kept going, she couldn't find the trail anymore. And her plan was to camp at a specific village, but she came to a different sign other than that which she was expecting, and she was trying to decide what to do. And so she decided she would continue her hike. But also, in an attempt to make it to that village, she decided to ditch her, her backpack that had food and water and her sleeping bag so that she could get there before nightfall. But she never found the village. Now she's stranded in 2,000 square miles. And the next day she goes back to find her backpack, but she can't find it. 
like the trails, they don't look familiar at all. And so she begins just to hope to see anybody or a plane. And she begins yelling just in the hopes that someone might hear her. The temperature is over 100 degrees and she's not had any water for about 24 hours. And as a nurse, she knows that she needs about two gallons of water a day in these kind of settings. And she said, the second night was so much harder than the first because she was losing hope of ever finding her way out. She wondered if someone would find her. And each year she knew the stats about four people die of dehydration in the Grand Canyon. And so the third day, she sees some water dripping. She begins to wonder, is that a mirage or is it real? And it's real. Her dog goes over and begins immediately drinking it. And so she uses a plastic eyeglass case to catch water because there's no way just drip by drip that it's going to help in her mouth. And so she puts it underneath. So, And after an hour, she's able to basically get a cup of water to drink. And so she spends the night there next to the water. Day four, she realized that she is still going to be gone another 10 days before anyone knows that she's missing. And that's difficult for her just to comprehend. And so for five straight days in a row, she looks for a way out, but she cannot find a trail. She is trapped in the maze of the canyon, and she begins to believe that maybe she's not going to escape. Twelve days now, she hasn't had any food and very, very little water. And one moment, her dog knocks over her, her eyeglasses thing full of water, and she just responds by yelling at the dog to which the dog then runs away. And now she understands that she is truly alone. And that night a big storm comes and she tries building a shelter with some branches next to a couple big rocks. But even in doing so, she hears some predators not far away of the howling and the hissing. She decides she needs to leave that area to be able to stay safe. But now she's out in the open and she's scared about catching hypothermia. So she begins to sing songs and quote scriptures to help her through the night. You see, she's been taking daily hikes, but only about an hour away from her water source. But on day 13, she finds a glass bottle under a rock hanging. And so she fills that glass bottle with water. And now on day 14, she's ready to go as far as she can. And finally, she decides, I'm going to try to climb up to be able to see from the top. And while climbing, her bottle falls out and it breaks. And she gets to the top and she realizes that she's not really at the top. Like just looking around, she sees that really she can't see much more than when she was on the canyon floor. However, she does see some horses nearby and that sign of life gives her a renewed faith. And she follows them, which then leads her to water. And at night, she begins to drift in and out of consciousness, and she begins to have nightmares. It's nearly three weeks into her ordeal, but she sees a helicopter. Her family has reached out when she hasn't been home, and she waves her arms and screams, but the helicopter doesn't see her. Her family, though, does not give up. They have driven down, and they do find the place that her car is parked. They see that it has been broken into, but they still want to give everything they have in an attempt to find her. It's been 19 days since she's been lost, and Linda now gives up hope. She says, I hoped, and I just prayed that maybe I could just die in my sleep, and that would be the peaceful way to go. 
But on day 20, she wakes up hearing voices. But again, she's not sure if it's real or if it's fake. And so she looks down and she sees four members from the village are walking towards her. They had seen some footprints that were not in the tourist area. And they came out to find her. They take her back to the village. Her family is there waiting for her, as well as her dog. And she's all excited about that. You see, Linda has been saved really after she has lost had absolutely no hope. Or I read, watched another story about an Australian hiker. His name was Lincoln, and he wanted to make it to the summit of Mount Everest. In fact, he had tried before when he was younger, but he had to turn back before reaching the very top. Ten climbers that year had already died before reaching the summit. And so 20,000 feet up is the pre-summit camp that he has stayed in this night. And he leaves with guides really early in the morning, so early that it's now dawn and he makes it to the second step, which is the biggest obstacle to completing his dream. And after hours, he made it to the summit. He is literally on top of the world. But coming down, everyone knows that you have to make it past what they call the death zone. It's a three hour descent that is ahead of them. And your ambition to get to the top is gone. And so now you're just making it down. And Lincoln is so tired, he ends up passing out in the snow because of a severe type of altitude sickness. And everyone knows they have to get down quickly or he is not going to survive. But no one can carry another person down from Everest because each person needs their own strength to be able to get down. And a little while later, he comes to, and he knew where he was at. And so he begins to hike again with his guides. But there's major fluid on his brain, and everything is difficult to do, even taking that next step. But he makes it back to that second step, and they find another guide there. Someone that that guide was leading has just died, and he was trying to rappel down what was called the second step. And so that causes Lincoln to go delirious. In fact, he even tries to jump off the cliff, but the guides jump onto him and keep him there. They talk with him and they're trying to figure out how do we get through to him. And so they radio down to one of his friends who is at base camp and he talks to him on the radio and that at least gets him through in that moment. He gets up and it's time to rappel down on his own. And yet on his way down, he loses consciousness and a lot of his life flashes before his eyes. And he comes to again and he looks around and just sees the beautiful view and he's able then to make it down the cliff. And so they continue to move as time was getting short, as was oxygen, and yet again, Lincoln collapses in exhaustion and again is unconscious. And with no chance of getting him down, the guides decide that they need to just leave him so that they too won't die. They pray for him. They take his belongings to be able to give back to his family. And he's left on the mountain for dead. At base camp, they call his family to give them the news. Well, three, after, three hours after being left, Lincoln wakes up and he is out in the middle of the night. It is negative 25 degrees. And so he tries to get up close to rocks and he has to stay awake Otherwise, he knows he will not live. And so he rocks his body over and over, beginning in a circular motion. His wife wakes up to a dream that night, feeling as if her husband is coming back, but then reality sets in. 
and she can hear her son crying in the room next to her. Lincoln, he couldn't feel anything, like even his frostbitten fingers. And then he began to feel too hot, and so he starts taking off his coat, which is a sign of hypothermia, and he thought he's about to die, when again he realizes, as he thinks about his family, that if I die here, I will never get to see them again. And love begins to inspire him. Twelve hours after being left for dead, another guide from the next day is on his way up and sees him. But in the state that Lincoln is, he still may not make it. Like Lincoln says things like, ah, what a brilliant boat to be on. Or he's saying things like, what great weather for a cruise. And so these guides, they're giving him oxygen to help his brain and chocolate to help his blood sugar levels. They radio down to camp that Lincoln is still alive. But even after that, Lincoln is still delirious. And he fights against the guides who are trying to help him. And other guides show up to also help him get down. They have a 7,000 foot decline still to get him down. And he takes only a few more steps until he collapses again. And it happens again and again and again. But these guides, they keep pushing him hard because they know that if he stops, he will not make it. And so they do everything they can to keep him going. And after 10 hours um, down, they finally get him back to camp and he is completely exhausted. But he calls home and he says, it's okay. Like that's all the words he could get out, but it's okay. These stories of people being rescued, they can cause us to be excited. Like we feel both the lows and the highs for those individuals who were almost dead and their families. But the excitement that we feel rises exponentially when the person who is lost or is taken is someone that you know. Like when they are found, nothing is gonna stop you from celebrating because the person that you care for once was lost, but now they're found. Have you ever really stopped to think about the fact though that you were once lost? You were lost. Each of us was in a position where we could not save ourselves and we needed help. We needed rescued. And when we come to realize that our life was in danger, that someone rescued me, like it causes us to become extremely grateful for the fact that we are saved. You see, Jesus came so that we could have salvation. And if you turn back into Genesis chapter one, you read about you know, Adam and Eve coming into play and you see how God had made everything perfect, but they chose to sin in chapter three. And ever since then, sin has been in this world where we have continued to rebel against God. And Ephesians chapter two, verse one, simply says this. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You see, Paul says, you and I, we were dead with absolutely no hope in ourselves, but God rescued us. Like, I still remember some sermon in high school when someone was speaking on this verse, talking about we were dead. Like, sometimes we think we're like, eh, we were kind of hurting or all that. He said, no, 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 you were dead like a bug on a windshield. You had absolutely no hope. You couldn't just work harder and make yourself better, but we were dead. Sometimes we forget that. And so it just becomes kind of, thanks Jesus for saving me. Like that's kind of the extent that we give. But we forget how much we needed to be saved. 
We weren't just on a plane about to crash or stuck in a collapsed mine or lost in the Grand Canyon or even about to die on Mount Everest. Like we were dead. But now we're saved. Now we are alive is the song we just heard. And God has given us armor, specifically as we're looking today, this helmet of salvation. In Ephesians 6, 17, it simply says to take up the helmet of salvation. And this morning, we're going to look at three aspects of salvation to help us understand what God has given us to be able to win the battle. And so first is this, as Christians, we have been saved. As Christians, we have been saved. It is a past event. It occurred when we accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior in our lives. There's this combination from Scripture of belief and a confession that that's what we believe, a repentance that our life changes, and this idea of baptism that I'm obedient to Him and all that. A combination of all those things, not one of those things by itself. That's what happens. I choose Jesus. Other scripture talks about how we were once lost, but now we're found. Or we are now a new creation. Or you and I, we are forgiven from all of our sins. Or the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us. us. All of that shows a past event in our lives when we were saved. In fact, Ephesians 2.8 says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this, not from yourselves, it is a gift from God. You see, you and I, we have been saved. If we're wanting to talk about big church words, let me tell you this word called justified. What that word means is this idea that you and I are declared righteous. We are saved. We are justified. I think about uh, an event from CIY a few years ago that in the morning they called up, one of the speaker called up someone from one of the youth groups and they just started asking her about the good things she'd done or all that. But then they began like, talking about some of the bad things she'd done. And again, not airing everything, but just going, okay, so all these things, why do you deserve to go to heaven? And like, she couldn't give an answer. And as the crowd, like you could just feel the tenseness going, man, what is gonna happen? What's she gonna say? Like this speaker, he's like kind of being kind of rude on this or whatever. And then all of a sudden he says, when Satan is there yelling at every single one of these things, saying that this is why this person does not belong in heaven, Jesus stands right in front and says, it's all been forgiven. It has all been paid for because she is declared righteous. It is not her own righteousness that saves her, but it is Jesus. We have been saved. Or I think about a dream that someone had, and they kind of entitled it The Room, where they woke up in this room full of file cabinets all around them. And they began looking at the file cabinets and realizing it's all about their life. And so there are different categories such as dating or lies or books or rage, sibling rivalry, friends, food. They go over to one that says shared the gospel and it was relatively empty. And they just go around looking at all these aspects of their life. And then there's these files that they're not so proud of. They're wanting to try and tear them up, destroy them, and yet they cannot be destroyed. And this person looks and sees Jesus walk in. And as he walks in, he starts reading through the files. And, you know, the guy's like, he's going to the worst ones first. I don't want anyone to ever read these things. And yet he's reading them. And he comes over and puts his arm around him. And Jesus just begins to cry with him. And then he goes back to the file and pulls out a paper and begins to cover the guy's name 
with his blood because it's all been paid for. You see, if you wear the name Christian, you are saved by what Christ has already done. And you don't have to be afraid of losing that salvation. Like sometimes people will question, well, I don't know, am I going to be good enough to be able to get into heaven? I mean, all these things that I still do bad even after I chose him or times that I've doubted or even times that I've gone off the path, like am I sure that I get to go to heaven? Can I tell you that there are some people that believe a philosophy called once saved, always saved, where there's absolutely no way that you can lose your salvation. And they would say that if you're not end up saved, you weren't ever saved to begin with. They'll use verses from Romans that talk about nothing can separate us from the love of God. Or even a verse out of Jesus' own words that talk about no one can pluck these followers from my hand. Except I don't believe that those verses actually point to that. Like I think they say that each person still has a choice about their own faith and their own salvation. Like I do believe that no outside force can take away your salvation. No outside force can make you turn your back on Jesus. But if you choose to do so, it is always your choice. There's a passage in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, that's pretty clear that someone can fall away from God. But even telling you all that, like I don't get into big debates about this topic. Well, is once saved, always saved, or whatever. Like I don't get into those uh, debates because here's the truth. If you really are following after Jesus, if you have a faith then really the argument, which way you believe, really doesn't matter. Like, you are saved. It doesn't matter how many times you messed up. Your salvation is based on Jesus. And so, like, I hope some of you, like, if you leave this morning, like, maybe you get to be a little bit more confident in the salvation that you hold, in the salvation that you have because of what Jesus did at Calvary and that you accepted his grace. It's not just based on how good of a Sunday you had or a Monday you had. Because as Christians, we have been saved. But salvation doesn't stop there. You see, as Christians, we are being saved. The aspect of salvation is also one that is happening right now. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, it says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Or in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, it says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And as you can see, this part of salvation is in the present. It's in the present. It is based on the salvation that Jesus gave us and we once chose, but God continues to save you and me. If we're talking about big church words, this word is called sanctified, okay? Justified means that you are made righteous. Sanctified means that you are made holy, you are set apart. And so God continues to work on you, to mold you, to purify you, to save you. Imagine the potter with his clay as he continues to mold just the way he wants and then places you into the fire so that again, you are strong. All of that is the process of saving And as he does that, like he's also saving us from sin each day. Like, yes, we've been forgiven of all the sin that we've ever done, but there are consequences to our choices in this world, both good and bad. And so as God works inside of me and I choose to say no to the things that are against him, he saves me from having to feel those consequences. 
I think about the events in the life of David surrounding Bathsheba, where after a one-night stand, she's pregnant. He tries to decide, what am I going to do? And after not being able to get his, her husband back with her, he ends up murdering him. And then as soon as the time of grieving has happened, he then marries her to be able to cover up his sin. And about nine months later, he's confronted by a prophet. And then not long afterwards, we see the death of the child. And amongst all of that, at the very end, David writes in Psalm 51, restore to me the joy of my salvation. This was a daily living with God that he wants to go back to, that he has not experienced for a while because he's been caught in all of this sin. He wants the saving of his life again in that moment. Because you see, as Christians, we are being saved in the present. But there's one more aspect of salvation. You see, as Christians, we will be saved. We will be saved. And though we've been forgiven, and though God continues to work in us, we're still living in a world of sin, of sickness, of death. And one day we will fully be saved. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, it says, You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. That's future because you and I, we have not reached the end yet. Romans 13, 11 says, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. You see, we were saved when we first believed, but there's another aspect of salvation that is still to come. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, it says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on a faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. See, we have a hope of being saved that is still in the future. And so as Christians on this earth, we have not experienced complete salvation yet. And again, if you want to look at a big church word, the word is called glorified. Glorified, where there will be a final saving, where we will see the fullness of grace and freedom from sin and death, where we will no longer have to fight each day because we don't live amongst sin anymore, where it is complete deliverance from every kind of evil, where we leave behind the sin nature, where there is no more death or mourning or pain or sickness there's perfection. As Christians, we long for this day, the day of our final salvation. And if you think that I'm reading too much into the salvation, it only refers to us being saved by Jesus, then listen to these couple verses. In 1 Corinthians 6, 11, it says, and that is what some of you were. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And in Romans 8, and those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. You see those big words of justified and sanctified and glorified, they're found in some of the same set of verses because salvation is not just a one-time event. It is past and present and future. And so as we go back to the armor that God has given to us, this helmet of salvation that we get to put on, like we can be thankful. We can live confidently that Jesus has saved us.
We can be grateful that he is saving us right now each and every day. And we can be hopeful in the final salvation that is yet to come, that we get to experience true freedom and rescue, and we will be free at last. You know, the great news is that Jesus just didn't wait for us to set all this in motion. In Romans 5, 8, it says, but God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait just saying, okay, you need to achieve some kind of thing. He's like, man, I love you and I want you to be with me forever. And so he went to the cross willingly to demonstrate that love, to open up the way so that you and I can be saved. And so we come to our invitation time where for some of you, you need to make that initial step that I need Jesus. Like I have been lost. I've been trying to find my way out of things and I can't do it on my own. And you need Jesus to save you. And if that's you, while we're sitting here and singing this song about the cross and what was displayed there, then I encourage you to make your way back to the decision point. And if you simply need prayer for things that are going on in your life right now, this continual saving that God will give you the strength to make it through, then I encourage you to do that as well. One day, we will be saved for eternity. So let's continue to live each day in light of that. If you have a decision to make, make your way to the decision point. Let's stand and sing.